0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here 101.9. Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman. It's great to be with you here on this wonderful, beautiful day as we go from the days of awe and getting ready to launch into the days of joy. From feasting, or rather, from fasting into feasting. One of the most exciting. Holidays in the year is here. We're going to sit in our sukkah, we're going to shake the lulav and sing and dance while enjoying seven days of wonderful parties and delicious meals. But what is sukkah all about? Why are we so joyful? What are we celebrating? Let's take some time today to analyze, to discover, to discuss some of the themes of this fascinating holiday and hopefully glean and gain a deeper spiritual understanding of the various aspects of the historical and spiritual background to the rituals and laws of this beautiful holiday. So here we are, just five days after Yom Kippur, we begin to celebrate the joyous holiday of Sukkot, which begins on the 15th day of Tishrei on the Hebrew calendar. And the first two days of this festival are a Tov during which most forms of work are forbidden. The next five days are intermediate days, during which Most forms of work are permissible on Chol Hamoed. Now, Sukkot is followed immediately by two more festivals, Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah, which we'll hopefully have some time to discuss next week. Now, most Jewish holidays celebrate specific events, right? Pesach celebrates our emancipation from slavery, the Exodus from Egypt. Shavuot celebrates our receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Rosh Hashanah, we commemorate the creation of man. Yom Kippur, the day we received the atonement when Moses brought the second tablets down from Mount Sinai. Well, what does Sukkot celebrate? It's not a one-time event. In fact, Sukkot celebrates a 40-year event. What is that? The entire journey of our ancestors through the desert. And during Sukkot, we're going to move into the outdoors. We move into our sukkah huts and there are two ways to understand the link between the sukkah and the journey of our ancestors through the wilderness. Firstly the sukkah reminds us of the miraculous cloud canopy, the Hakavod, the clouds of glory that protected our ancestors from the various elements of the desert during their journey and also our ancestors lived in simple tents, I guess you could say similar to our temporary sukkah for those 40 years until they finally reached the promised land so From that perspective, the point of the sukkah is to remind us that we need to be grateful for all the blessings we have for our permanent, comfortable homes. And this is something that's discussed actually in the Gemara itself. And the Gemara says that it reminds us, the sukkah is a reminder that we're in Hashem's hands. Just as we were in God's hands when He took us out of Egypt back then and performed all the wonders and miracles for us in the desert Gave us the manna, split the sea, gave us the Torah, all the miracles that occurred back then. Well, we too are in Hashem's hands, even today. And even though we have our creature comforts and everything else that we live so much more comfortably in the lap of luxury, you can say, let's remember the source of our blessings. So each year now, we go outside and we celebrate in the sukkah as a reminder of all the blessings that we have in our life. And we thank God with abundance of gratitude. And although... All Jewish holidays indeed are joyful and happy, but Sukkot is particularly joyful. In fact, what do we refer to it as in our prayers? We say, this is the time, the season of our rejoicing. Why specifically Sukkot? Now there's several reasons for this. Historically, God forgave our ancestors for the sin of the golden calf, the Cheta Egel on Yom Kippur. So Sukkot coming right after Yom Kippur is this opportunity for us to rejoice of the confidence, the the verdict that we know that God has forgiven us and blessed us with a good year ahead. So no doubt that's something great that we're for us to celebrate at this time. Of course, this is something when we think about that we're celebrating the Anani hakavah the clouds of glory on Sukkot, because they were withdrawn actually because of the Chet eagle, the sin of the golden calf. And they were only restored after Yom Kippur, the original Yom Kippur, as an expression of Hashem forgiving the sin of the golden calf. So that's another reason that there's a direct link and connection. Because otherwise one might think, shouldn't this idea of sukkahs really be attached to the Pesach celebrations? Isn't it more closely connected with what we're celebrating on Pesach or Exodus from Egypt, which is when the Jews began, launched their journey into the desert? But of course, there you might say, well, you're going to celebrating your sukkah when it's nice and comfortable outside, when the weather's nice and warm. Well, then in Israel, this is the beginning of the autumn season when things are getting colder and cooler and rainier. So we are specifically doing it now. And also, you have a more direct link, the idea that the clouds of glory were actually removed. They were withdrawn because of the sin of the golden calf. And they were restored. They were returned as a God's expression of forgiveness to the Jewish people. So this is another reason to be celebrating Sukkot right after Yom Kippur. Of course... Since Yom Kippur is the day that God atones us for our sins, God grants us a year of goodness, of abundant blessings, please God for material and spiritual well-being. So on Sukkot, we're celebrating God's kindness. We're rejoicing over God's largesse, that God has indeed forgiven us, atoned our sins, and blessed us with all these things in our life. So that is another deep idea, the the intense connection that we forge with God on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's bursting forth in, in this torrent of joy and celebration during the holiday of Sukkot. And Hasidus explains that joy is a state of revelation. We see that from the fact that when we're in a state of joy, what is the, what is the language? That we, we tend to open up our secrets. The numerical value, the Gematria, the word yayin, wine is 70 and sod, secret is 70. So that is a mystical A very simple and basic one, but one connection of the wine and secrets. And of course, based on this idea that Sukkot is five days after Yom Kippur, it's immediately linking and celebrating the joy that we were forgiven, that we're atoned. And this is the celebration that we're expressing on Sukkot. Now, Sukkot is also called the Chag haasif it's the festival of the gathering. It's a time of joy because every Jewish holiday also has an agricultural connection. Pesach is the beginning of the harvest season. Shavuos is when the fruit are ripening and you begin to enjoy them. But Sukkot is the culmination, the conclusion of that. When you gather the fruit and you bring them all into your home and you have all your produce. So of course, when Jews in ancient Israel would gather their harvest and in, indoors, <laughs> excuse me, So And in fact, we see in the Torah itself as well, on Pesach, the Torah actually doesn't even tell us to rejoice. You can imagine they were slaves, they were liberated, finally emancipated from their bondage. Shouldn't that be a reason to rejoice? And indeed, it is a reason to rejoice. We rejoice on Pesach, but there's no specific instruction. And this, our sages tell us is from the agricultural perspective because the crops were not fully ripe when Pesach comes. On Shavuot, the Torah instructs us to rejoice, but it's only written once, and that's because although we have the crops and they're harvested, but since the crops are still in the field and not yet ready to eat, our joy actually can't be complete. Yet when Sukkot comes, the Torah instructs us to rejoice twice. It says it two times. Now that the crops enter our home, we can finally relax, we can truly rejoice over our bounty. And the idea the Medrash is telling us with this insight is that although oh, it's true that most of us are no longer in agriculture, and the harvest and the gathering of the crops still play out on a spiritual level at, with an important message and lesson that we have to actually take from this. You see, on Pesach, our ancestor had emunah. They had faith, but they weren't yet given the mitzvahs with which to serve Almighty God. And this is like having crops in the field that aren't yet ripe. On Shavuos, we received the mitzvahs. But we didn't yet have a chance to actually fulfill them. They were given to us, but we had not yet made them our own through actually fulfilling the commandments. And this, you could say, is like, (laughs) excuse me, like harvesting the ripened crop, but the crop is still in the field. It's not yet in our homes. It's only now that we are in Sukkot, that Sukkot is coming. And after several months of observing the mitzvahs, that we could say that we have brought the Torah way of life into our homes. We've made it our own. We experience it. We live it. And this is like the gathering of the crops into our home. And even though our ancestors committed a terrible sin during that time, they wished the golden calf. But the fact that they repented, that they did teshuva, and God granted them atonement, they were forgiven. That demonstrates that we can remain true to Torah under all conditions, even with the greatest temptations, even with the greatest struggles and challenges, and this is truly a reason that we can rejoice now on the festival of Sukkot when we celebrate our forgiveness, our atonement, but the link to the agricultural season as well—the idea that while Pesach our ancestors had faith from the agricultural perspective, you have the fruit, you're free, but you don't, you can't access it yet. And Shavuos, the fact that you actually had the commandments. And you actually have your fruit, but it's still in the field. Sukkot is now you observe the Torah mitzvahs. Now you can actually take the fruit and bring it into your home and truly experience God's blessings. I guess you could also say when we bring in a bountiful harvest, when you have so much to be grateful for, sometimes we forget the source of our blessings. Sometimes we don't acknowledge the that Almighty God is the one who blessed us. We think it's our own prowess, our own wisdom, our own brilliance that brought us our success. It's easy to grow hoary, to be arrogant, to forget the bounty is God-given. And so God therefore gave us a festival to thank Him with humility for His generosity. And this is the festival of Sukkot. When we're going to go outside, we're going to be exposed to the elements. We see ourselves as vulnerable. We realize how vulnerable indeed we are. And this is a time that we celebrate. So ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to get into that celebration mode. In fact, I'm sure you've already been deep, deep into it. Our sages tell us, this letter says that for the first 14 days of the year, no Jews sins. How could they? The first 10 days of the year, we're consumed with with, with atoning for our sins, right? That's the made to Teshuvah, beginning with Rosh Hashanah, going into Yom Kippur. Then the next four days, in fact, they're called Guts Naman, just like the Tetragrammaton, the holy name of Hashem, has four letters, Yud and Hei and Vav and Hei. Well, same thing, these four days from Yom Kippur to Sukkot are referred to as God's name, and we're preparing for Sukkot, there's just no time, there's no time at all for anything. We're getting our to and we're getting our Sukkot built, we're getting everything ready, there's no time to sin. So, indeed, Sukkot preparations are a lot more extensive in some ways than preparing for any other Jewish festival. Of course, as one who organizes the Pesach retreat annually, I can tell you there's a lot of preparation for Pesach. Whether you're doing it at home, you got to clean your house out, you got to get everything ready. But it's more of logistics and menus. You don't have to build a sukkah for Pesach. You don't have to procure your Arba Minim, the four kinds, the of the Esrug, the and the Arabas, which we're going to talk about in a moment. So sukkah is, is a lot more intense of a preparation in many ways, especially since you're coming from the holidays of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, which themselves are quite a time-consuming period. So we're going right into Sukkot. So let's talk about the ways to get ready for Sukkot. First of all, did you build your sukkah yet? If you haven't, even if you have, let's talk about what is it that makes up a sukkah. The sukkah literally is an outdoor temporary hut. Right? It's walls can be made of any material that can withstand an ordinary wind. You gotta be careful because with this unpredictable weather we have here in Joburg, you never know a wind can come and blow it away. So make sure you actually have walls that can withstand any winds. Now the roof though has to be comprised of schach, which is basically harvested foliage, something that grew from the ground, but has been cut from the ground that or a tree So growing up in Brooklyn, New York, we used pine branches. The pine branches are very pretty, but those needles can fall and get stuck in your soup. Not so pleasant. Here, we're lucky to have palm branches. Palm branches don't have that same problem. And of course, you just have to make sure that whatever you use, we also use like bamboo mats or bamboo sticks. If it's bamboo sticks, not a problem, nice and fresh. A couple of years ago, we cut down bamboos from one of our neighbors' homes and we had lots of bamboos on top of our sukkah. Uh You could also buy the bamboo mats from many of their local suppliers. There are not that many, but any of our local suppliers. But make sure that the sukkah mat was made specifically for the purpose of a sukkah and not for any other purpose. Also, you have to make sure your sukkah is directly under the skies, not under a tree or an overhang. you got to be careful about that and take a look and plan where you're actually going to build your sukkah. When you put the sukkah on top, make sure that there's enough sukkah so that the sukkah has more shade than sunlight. That's one of the rules. But at the same time, you can't make it too thick. You have to be able to see the stars through it. So it's sort of a balance there that on the one hand, we pile on a thick layer of schach. But at the same time, it can't be too thick to prevent the, the rain from coming through or from the star visibility. And whatever you're going to use, make sure it's just something, you know, they sell bamboo mats on the sides of the streets. I don't think that is something that is kosher to be used for your schach on the sukkah. Now, how, what dimensions, what size does the sukkah have to be is a question we always get. So I'm going to ask you a question. How do you spell the word sukkah in Hebrew? Of course, the Hebrew spelling of the word sukkah is samach, kaf, and hey. A samach, as you know, has four walls. It's surrounded on all sides. So the ideal sukkah is one that will have four walls. The second letter of the word sukkah, a kaf. That has three walls in its written form. Well, the next way you can make a sukkah is, if you can't do four walls, at least make three. And the third letter of the word sukkah is a hey. The hey has got two complete walls and a little bit of a third. So even if you have just two and a half walls, that too can be used for your sukkah. You can do the sukkah anywhere outdoors, as long as it's going to be under the sky and not over any under. not under any overhang or tree or anything that's going to be blocking the sukkah directly from the heavens. Now, many people have a custom that they like to beautify the sukkah with art, with draperies, with lights, with all types of decorative ornaments. Now, this, of course, is the way we demonstrate our love, how much we cherish the sukkah. You know what people say about the Chabad sukkah decorations? Because in Chabad, we have a custom not to decorate the sukkah because we think that, the mitzvah itself is the most potent beautifier of the sukkah, so they say that our Chabad sukkah decorations are off the wall. Well, we've talked about the sukkah and the preparation for the celebration. We will be right back in a few moments and we'll continue our discussion. We're going to talk about the four species right when we're back. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9, Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Arikivan. Great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon as we're getting ready for the joyous celebratory holiday of Sukkot. And so far, we talked about some of the preparations that we need to do to get ready for this fabulous holiday, my favorite time of the whole year, and I'm sure yours too. So now it's time to get your lulav, your esrog, your four species, and as the Torah itself, itself says, the Yom that you should take for yourselves on the first day of this holiday, pre Eit Hadar, the fruit of a beautiful tree, Kapo Yistmarim, the date palm fronds, and Arve Nachal, a branch from a braided tree, the willow of a brook, and you should rejoice before Hashem, your God, for seven days. Well, my friends, our sages tell us, what are these four species that the Torah is talking about? Specifically, the Esrog, which is a citron fruit, and the Lulav, the palm frond, the hadassim, the myrtle branches, and arava, the willow branches. Now the estrog, if we think of that as unique, that it is part of the lemon family. It grows in warm climates. You can find them in Israel, in Italy, in Morocco. I know some people even try to grow them here locally in South Africa. I'm not sure if it was done in the correct fashion, if it can be considered kosher or not. But certainly it grows mostly in warm climates, although we're told that it grows through all seasons of the year, regardless of the season, which we'll get to in a moment. We'll discuss the idea, the concept of the unity of these four species. The esrog has to be complete. Make sure when you're looking after your esrog, there's no holes or any missing sections of the esrog, because then it wouldn't be qualified as kosher. If the esrog comes with a pitum, which a lot of the estrogum in town this year do, that's the small bulbous stem at the top then the pitum has to remain intact for the esrog to be kosher. The esrog is green at first, but it can become yellow over time. It's kosher to have a green esrog, but a yellow esrog, we're told, is most preferable. The Torah calls the esrog pre-e the fruit of a beautiful tree. And therefore, you'll find many people who are going to sift very carefully, analyzing each esrog in order to select the most beautiful specimen and it is indeed a mitzvah for any mitzvah to be performed in the most beautiful way, but certainly a mitzvah that the Torah tells us is hadar, that it is beautiful, that we look for one that is most attractive in shape and and most beautiful with, with few blotches. That is the ideal esrog that we should try to attain. Now the lulav, which is the branch of a palm tree, it has many layered branches that hug the central stem. And that's another symbol of unity, just like the esrog that goes through all the seasons. The lulav, the fact that it's leaves that they all grow, to, that they're all actually branched together, um, The that makes it another aspect of unity, of coming together. The lulav, when you're looking at them and you want to make sure you're buying a kosher lulav, make sure that the lulav should stand straight rather than bending in any directions. And also its branches should hug the stem, again, emphasizing that idea of unity rather than pulling away from the stem. If you're going to look at the willows, I know there's a lot of people in town sometimes selling willows, but you got to be careful to make sure you're going to buy the right ones to make sure they're kosher. Same thing with the myrtle branches because the myrtle branches, most of them are imported and what can oftentimes happen is by the time we get them, they might be lacking a lot of their leaves already. So the basic rule of thumb is it needs to have at least 51% of their leaves still on the branches. If it doesn't, then that would be problematic. Now in Shulchan Aruch, we are told if most of the hadas clusters lost most of the leaves, then actually it is invalid. It would be considered a puzzle. But if the top cluster is fully intact, then actually it remains kosher. So best if you have questions about it to bring it to your local competent Orthodox rabbi. I know that our base then is certainly offering a service where you can bring in your Arba Minium to make sure that they are of good quality, that they'd be considered kosher. The same thing you could say about the willow leaves. They actually dry out very easily and quickly. So if you've already bought your Arba Minim, my suggestion is put them in the fridge or put them into something moist to make sure that they will not get uh, in any way frat between now and when sukkah begins, when you're going to be using them. It's ideal to put them in the refrigerator. On Arosukah, what you're going to do is slip the myrtle and willow you know, there's that beautiful kaishle, they call that, that, that holder that's woven from palm fronds. That's very nice and beautiful, even though in the Chabad tradition, we don't use those. We actually use rings that are made out of the lulavim branches themselves, and we tie them all together. So depending on what your custom is, if your custom is to use the woven baskets, then what you're going to do is, you're going to put the hadassim, the myrtles on the right side of the basket, the willows on the left side of the basket. But if you're going to follow the Chabad custom, then you are going to actually put the two willows against the lulav. We like to do a whole demonstration, our shul and our sukkahs. Everyone brings the lulavim together. We all sit in the sukkah. We have some sushi in the sukkah. And everyone then organizes their lulav sets. So what you do is you put the Aravas against the lulav, one on the right, one on the left, and the hadasim around it. In fact, in the Chabad custom, we try to have a lot more extra hadasim if that is possible for one to acquire, it would be most ideal. And what else do you need to do to get ready for sukkahs? So we talked about the main things, which is building your sukkah. We discussed the getting, acquiring, procuring your sets of the lulav and esrig and everything else. So if you have any other types of preparation that you got to do at home, well, of course you're going to be lighting candles for welcoming in the holiday. So make sure you have candles or tea lights, and maybe also to have, even though there's no Yitzker in this part of the holiday, but might be a good idea to have a 24-hour candle from which you can light for the second night from a pre-existing flame. Of course, you need uh, wine and grape juice and and chalas. In fact, it's a custom to still use round chalas all the way through Hashanah Rabbah through this festive season. Uh, We still dip the chalas in honey during our meals, so good idea to have lots of honey around. We know that honey comes from the bee. The bee gives stings But we need to transform all the stings of life into honey. We can learn from the bee. Another nice thing, that the bee, unlike the flies, the flies go to the dung. The bees, on the other hand, the bees come to the flowers. That's what the bees do. So let's be attracted to the flowers. Let's not get distracted with the dung, with the manure, with the problems. And something else to realize, you know, that one bee produces very little honey. It's only when we, all the bees come together that we're actually able to produce the masses amounts of honey that we need. And likewise, we might see our own actions and deeds as minuscule, as minimal as, as what can I achieve? But we all come together. Every single one of us, maybe we're dwarfs, but we're in the shoulders of giants of all the previous generations and our generation alone as well. Each one of us coming together, we can achieve so much. So let's be like the honey. Let, let that honey, which gets as you put it onto the challah, it goes all over the place. We want the sweetness to go everywhere and permeate our year in the most beautiful way. So we're going to have that challah in the honey all the way until Hashanah Rabbah. And of course, there's lots of other things you could do. I'm just thinking about what I do for my shopping list before holiday. We like to get nice fresh flowers, decorations we discussed for the sukkah. You want to have your candlesticks. In fact, it's ideal when you're going to light the candles for sukkahs, ideally to actually light them. In the sukkah itself. If you can't light them in the sukkah in a safe manner, then you can have them somewhere where at least they'll be visible from the sukkah. So if you don't have your existing candlesticks, then get creative. Anything from the traditional silver candlesticks to floating candles that my mother likes to do in a crystal dish with flower petals and marbles and, and on, on, on a myrrh whatever works, whatever floats your candlesticks. Go for that. Make sure that you got the wine. Didn't We say that already, right? Nice challah cover. A cutting board, a knife. There's a significance since we're celebrating Sukkot. And during the 40 years of the journey of our ancestors through the desert, God fed them manna from heaven. Well, the challah board beneath the challahs and the cover above them is symbolic of the way we received the manna from heaven that... It had a covering of dew on top and bottom, which is another important thing to make sure that you have not just on sukkahs, but any holiday, but I'm emphasizing it particularly regarding sukkahs because this is the time that we're celebrating our ancestors' journey in the desert over 40 years. You want to make sure that your sukkah is nice and clean and beautiful as is befitting such a mitzvah. It's the only mitzvah where we're completely immersed inside the mitzvah. Well, I guess the only other one could be mikvah, but mikvah is not a mitzvah that happens on a regular basis, I guess mitzvah—the mitzvah of mikvah and sukkah—the only two that I could think of in my mind, where you're completely immersed in the mitzvah. Whereas the the mikvah it might be for a few seconds, the sukkah the entire, entire the entire period of this holiday we could spend so much time inside it. So why not spend even more and more time, make it a comfortable and beautiful place, have your finest dishware and glassware and flatware and whatever you need to make the sukkah experience beautiful. Now. Many people have a custom that they're going to sleep in their sukkahs. So you need to make sure you have that plan sorted out well. But if you're not sleeping in your sukkah, then certainly you want to make sure your home as well is most beautiful and comfortable. And we prepare for every single Shabbos and Yom Tov in this way. Make sure the, the beds are made beautifully and the dishes and the counters and the kitchen's tidy. And make sure that the rooms are, are, are beautiful and, and, and befitting what a holiday should be. The way we dress ourselves it 's appropriate to be well groomed before holiday begins and make sure that our shoes are polished and our and our clothing is pressed and everything else that you need to look most nice and beautiful. Check your pockets for anything that's muksa that you wouldn't want to be carrying, whether you live in the air that you can carry or certainly if you don 't live in an of, then the you definitely cannot carry and make sure there 's no muksa Of course, there are certain exceptions to every rule, for example. You know, if one is a Hatzala responder, then they're going to have to carry their phone. Same thing if one is involved with CSO or any other Jewish security organization protecting our community, then they follow the best in guidelines of what is or isn't allowed. Another suggestion tip that I have with setting up the lights, particularly load shedding related, is to make sure that you have some electronic timers so you can schedule the lights and whatever other appliances you need that have to go on or off at whatever times during the Yom Tav. Of course, when it comes to food preparation, we know that on Shabbos it's forbidden to do any cooking, although on Yom Tov you are allowed to cook, but that preparation has to be from pre-existing flame, and there are rules in regarding how that's done, so it's best for everyone to just brush up on the laws, the rules, the regulations that you do it in the most appropriate proper way, following the guidelines of Jewish law. And as you get ready for Tov, you're going to light those candles. You're going to say the appropriate blessings that you see inside your sitter. You're going to make your way to Shul. And we're going to begin a the Tov davening. It's extra joyous. It's extra celebratory. It's actually not very long at all. so It's perfect time. Any shuls are going to have sushi in the sukkah or whatever your shul might have. I'm just telling you what our shul at and Central, Central shul has. And you can enjoy sushi in the sukkah. But the main thing is you're going to be with your family and friends and celebrating. And don't forget the special bracha we say, Leishev basuka. We're also going to say Shechiyana both nights, either at candle lighting for women, or if a gentleman is lighting candle if he's living alone, then he also says Shechiyana then, and then he wouldn't recite it at Kiddush. But if you're going to not say it at candle lighting, then you certainly will say that bracha at Kiddush. But the bracha Leishev basuka is the additional extra blessing that is appropriate to be said each time we partake of a meal any food in the sukkah. Now the mitzvah of sukkah, we, doesn't have to be like the four kinds where we said the Torah says, it has to be your own. And that can be challenging sometimes, which is why when you borrow someone else's little you're not really borrowing it. They will say to you, Matana amanat which means it's a gift that they're giving to you on the condition that you'll return it. So there's a little stipulation. There's always a catch, but that's because you need to own your own set of the Arvaminim. However, when it comes to sukkah it does not have to be your own, it you could be at someone else's. People could be guests in each other's homes. On Pesach, oftentimes people are not tending to be guests in unnecessarily in other people's homes, unless of course you're coming to the Pesach retreat. Because people have certain standards of kashrut, and nobody wants to humiliate or offend somebody else if their standards are a bit different than the other person's. Yet when it comes to sukkahs, so we could all be with each other and it is most Beautiful and something I would encourage everyone to try to do to be with other fellow Jews and celebrate this holiday so whether you're in your own sukkah or in someone else's sukkah make sure to enjoy and to celebrate and to say the bracha of sukkah anytime you're going to eat a grain-based food and if the weather is inclemental what happens then? I'm a Chabadnik, and in the Chabad custom we withstand anything we'll stay in the sukkah regardless but let me say That is not halacha. That is the Chabad custom of beautifying the mitzvah of sukkah in a certain way. Even though we don't put up decorations to to beautify our sukkahs, that we say the sukkah itself is its own beauty. But we won't even drink an ounce of water outside the sukkah. Yet the halacha tells us that it's permissible actually to leave the sukkah, to go into your house to eat if you're going to experience some kind of significant discomfort in the sukkah. So if it's too hot, if it's too cold, if it's too rainy, if it's too windy, if it's mosquito infestation, whatever it might be, those are all valid reasons. And if you're not comfortable to eat in the sukkah for any reason, then technically speaking, you can go back home. Of course, if you want to do the ideal thing, then follow our way, which is to eat everything in the sukkah, regardless of the weather. Now, we were discussing how sukkah commemorates this journey of our ancestors across the desert. And that, of course, is something you know why we celebrate their journey at this time of the year, because the fact is that, as we said before, this is like a coldish rainy season, autumn beginning in Israel depends on you know the the day it could be independently on the area, but let's say in the u s where I grew up in New york, it's already cold, you need your sweater in in Russia where my father grew up it's certainly cold and it's a whole different experience. And the idea then, of course, is that it's not about going outside when it's dry and comfortable for me. That saying, you know, I go out and I do what God wants when it's nice and comfortable for myself. But stepping into the sukkah when it's not comfortable, what that demonstrates is that we're doing it exclusively for the mitzvah that God Almighty told us. And so this is another symbolism of the sukkah celebration. Let's squeeze in one more idea that comes to my mind. You know, when it's spring and summer, when the days are long and the sun is strong, that is representing, symbolizing the idea of divine revelation. But when the winter starts to come, and now's the beginning of the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, then the dark, cold days of winter, in a sense, represents, it symbolizes a time of divine concealment. And so bringing our festive celebrations outdoor at this time of the year is a way of bringing the light and revelation of the Torah into a world that sometimes seems dark and cold and otherwise that the divine... Aspects seem concealed. And so the sukkah brings the warmth and the inspiration and the light and the love of Judaism to a world that sometimes appears to be spiritually morose, melancholy, lugubrious, overcast. Seems like a spiritual winter. And so by going into your sukkah and celebrating this beautiful holiday in this most beautiful way, we are bringing that light and warmth and telling ourselves that, yes, we're out in the elements, we're out in the... We're exposed to everything else that's out there. But this is a demonstration of our deep faith and commitment to Almighty God. And we'll be right back in a moment and talk about some other ideas about Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Arkivan and it's great to be with here on this wonderful afternoon. And we are getting ready for the most joyous, jubilant, celebratory holiday of the year, the holiday of Sukkot. Well, I should say, this is leading up to Simchas Torah, which is even more gratefully joyous and celebratory. Well, let's get into that mode. And just like we like to celebrate the holiday with inviting guests and friends over, there are very special guests that Jewish mysticism teaches us that come to visit us in our sukkahs and sukkahs. And that is the souls of our great patriarchs and matriarchs, the leaders who started who founded the Jewish nation. And there's different opinions exactly who, which ones. Of course, we say Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and David and Melech. There are some other opinions of the sequence of an order. And no doubt they come with their wives and children to so make sure you have plenty of space, not just for them, because they'll only be comfortable to come into your sukkah if Your sukkah is a place where others feel comfortable to come into as well. And they come each day. But each day is another one of them who's, so to say, leading the group. And these visitors are called in Aramaic, Ushbizim. That means guests. And these are our special guests that we invite to the sukkah. Remember, it's important to also invite other guests, not just the Big Machers, not just our patriarchs and matriarchs. But you want, I remember once one of the magazines was asking, if you could have one special guest and your sukkah over sukkah, who would it be? And different people were answering that question. I was just reading through it. I don't know why I picked my curiosity. And you now one person said they would want Moses in their sukkah, another person, the Rebbe in the sukkah. Each person had a particular other person. And I, I just, there was one that caught my attention where somebody said, I would like to invite somebody who has nowhere else to go to eat. And I thought that was most profound in a beautiful way because that's ideally who should we who we should be inviting into our sukkahs to join us. Yes, it's true that our ancestors come over sukkahs and they join us in the sukkah, and that's because we're, we're 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 eating in the outdoors and we're bringing holiness into the outdoors, which, as we were talking before, can be cold and dark. And the yeshivim help us; they fortify us with the spiritual strength that this task requires of bringing the light and warmth to the outside world. But remember, more important the guests who you bring into your sukkah, the people you're going to spend that quality time with. And there's people actually have a special prayer for the yeshpizen each day about each particular one of these special guests that they invite into their sukkah. One of my favorite memories as a child growing up in Brooklyn, New York, was the Simchas Beis HaSho'eva celebrations. It was a tremendous, joyous feature of the holiday where we would go into the streets and we would have during the weekdays, during the Chalamayat days, live music and entertainment and all types of exciting things for the kids and food. It was an experience to behold. But the sages of the Talmud tell us, Misha, if simchas be- simchas you didn't see this celebration called which literally means the joy of the drawing of water, the joy of the water's rank, you didn't see a joy in your life. And so it takes us back to the times of the Beis HaMikdash in the ancient Jewish temple of old, the Kohanim would pour daily wine libations onto the mezbeach, the altar. Yet on Sukkot, not only would they pour wine, but there was a special ceremony in which they would pour water. And the libation was poured shortly after sunrise. But this occasion, as the Talmud describes to us, was one of the most joyous celebratory occasions of the year. And it lasted a whole night. The preparation, the people would sing and dance and the sages would come out there. The temple courtyard was lit up so brilliantly that the entire city of Jerusalem, according to the Gemara, was illuminated. And throughout the night, the sages and the leaders would dance in the temple courtyard and the people would clap and sing and dance It was a time of great joy and revelry and the Levites would play music and you can imagine the the grand concerto, the the concert that they would perform while the prophets would prophesy and they would share deep secrets of the Torah. But then, before sunrise, the Levites would sound the trumpets and the people would all parade from the temple down the mountain to the Shiloh well and that's where they would draw the water. You could go there today and see it and experience well, or Imagine experiencing what it was like back then. And then they would parade back up to the Beis HaMikdash. And then the steps leading to the Heichel, to the sanctuary, the Levim, would sound the trumpets again. And the people would would prostrate before Hashem. And the Kohanim would pour the libation of water. And eventually the people would disperse and go home maybe to catch a little bit of rest until the next day celebrations, and it 's true that today we cannot pour the libations we don 't have a temple, we don 't have an altar we don 't have sacrifices, and it 's not something that 's part of our daily ritual any longer but nevertheless, I think it 's a great message and lesson, and that 's why many, many communities celebrate some Kosheva and there's these great parties and events that I grew up with and the music and dancing and singing on the streets and so Here in Joburg too, no doubt there will be some celebrations that I encourage you to go to. And just to think about this for a moment, what is its significance? When you think about, you know, the first blush pouring water over the altar doesn't seem to be such a profound reason for joy. But when you think a little bit more and you reflect on this idea, you'll see that it's a deeply meaningful and joyful occasion. Because the two libations, the water and the wine, represents two ways of serving God. Wine has this wonderful bouquet right we we drink it for its flavor it has an aroma it has a taste It has it's very sophisticated water on the other hand is no flavor at all but water is the elixir of life and the same thing we have to realize is serving god is a very it's a highly enjoyable and spiritually satisfying endeavor especially you study torah and you understand it and you comprehend it and you connect with it and that's like the sophisticated understanding and appreciation of the mitzvahs that we do like the wine but whatever fulfillment that we derive from our relationship with God, it's it's finite, it's limited. When we serve God purely, simply because God wants us to serve Him, nothing to do with our own self-satisfaction and sophistication, that we're going to touch the ultimate meaning of life. And this is the idea of the Nisu Hammam of the drawing of the water that, that, that it, it actually is not even mentioned explicitly in the torah it 's a halhala it is something that is that is that is only implied in the Torah but yet Hasidus tells us that it 's because the revelation in Torah has to be channeled through the finite medium of its precise letters and the spiritual connection that we forge do the drawing of the water transcends limitations of the, just the letters the specific instructions within the torah itself that's more of the you know that's the sophistication of torah the mayim is something the water that transcends it it's not about uh, it's not about the deep appreciation which which is valuable and good too it's important to have that but you need to also have to do you know where where our mind ends where our mind can no longer comprehend that's where our faith, our belief the simplicity like the water has to kick in. And this is something that we, that we activated, our deepest bond of God in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, right? We, we, we went into like the Cohen going to the Holy of Holies. We too, so to speak, figuratively are going into our Holy of Holies, but it's an intensely private and intimate moment. On Sukkot, we move our celebrations outside. We go outdoors. We bring that depth of our soul, the pinnacle of our bond with God, we bring it out there into the open. And it's this pinnacle level that we're able to connect with Hashem for reasons that transcend our personal satisfaction, our our gain, that the the wine symbolizes. It's this revelation that's represented by the Nisuch HaMayim, the water libation, that stimulates such profound joy that we cannot sit still. We're moved to sing and to dance and to celebrate. And that's why the Sinchas Dei celebrations take place in the streets. We gather and share that joy with others as well. So make sure to do so. Make sure to celebrate. And there's lots of people out there who are, unfortunately, for reasons beyond whatever reasons that might be that people are sad and morose and lugubious and melancholy and depressed. Try to stimulate joy for them too. Please, try to... Elevate and share that joy to others, that everyone else is able to celebrate those are around you as well to be able to celebrate this holiday. And another important thing to do while you're going to fulfill the mitzvah of the four kinds on um, Sukkot, it's important to fill to share that mitzvah with others too because. The mitzvah is for others to participate, for everyone to participate. And you want to make sure, especially those who don't have their own little Venetric sets, that you give them an opportunity to do so. So again, remind them that you're giving to them as a gift, on a condition that they will return it, that they will give it back to you, and try to encourage others also to participate. And of course, it's a way of us proclaiming that we received the positive decree, we got a good verdict for a good year. It's like the victorious armies that would march with their swords held high so we're also lifting up our lulavs we're celebrating our victory in judgment that we know that god's granted us please god uh no doubt a great and good year and so we are going to do so we also know that Sukkot, as we discussed earlier is during the is the gathering season of the agricultural festivals that each festival has a agricultural element it so when we're gathering in our plentiful crop we don't want to grow haughty and boastful. We ensure our gratitude and our humility to God. So we're grant by gathering these four pleasing species that gladden the heart and holding them aloft, it's a way of showing gratitude to Hashem and it is a specific instruction in the Torah itself. So we're fulfilling God's will and we're helping others to do so as well. Of course, Sukkah celebrates this wondrous gift that God gave our ancestors when he took them from the uninhabitable wilderness, the desert, and settled us in the land of Israel, the promised land, God's gift to the Jewish people. And so we celebrate that as well by taking these four kinds that are plentiful in, in Israel and are pleasant in their appearance and in their fragrance, and we keep them fresh and green for these seven days. And we're holding them in joy and gratitude to Hashem. And of course, these teach us a about how the way that we have to serve God with our complete being. The Esog represents, we were talking about unity earlier, but another idea, the Esog represents the heart. And the lulav symbolizes the spine, the way it stands tall and strong. The myrtle leaves represent the eyes. Look at the hadas at the myrtle, you'll see it looks a little bit like an eye. And the willows are symbolic of the lips. And so the message is that the mitzvah is only complete when it's fulfilled with every aspect of our being. Every fiber of my being wants to express my appreciation, the praise of Hashem, right? You want some extra vitality points too. So make sure it's something that is done in a complete and encompassing way. Another message that I'm sure you've heard many times, but I think it's a profound message about Jewish unity, is the idea that the esrog is one fruit that has a very pleasant taste and a nice aroma, it's got a good fragrance, and that represents somebody, a Jew who studies Torah, which is the idea that you're getting a taste of divinity, and does mitzvahs, good deeds as well, which creates a pleasant fragrance and aroma around them. Whereas the date palm tree, the lulav, has a delicious taste, I mean, not the lulav itself, but it comes from a date palm tree, but there's no particular aroma to it. And that represents somebody who studies Torah, get the taste of divinity, but doesn't emphasize their good deeds and the mitzvahs that they perform. The hadas, the myrtle on the other hand, which has a very fine aroma but no taste that represents somebody who does good deeds that create a wonderful, fragrant aroma around them, very pleasing. But they don't necessarily study Torah. They're not engaged in that. And of course, you guess the arava, the willow, has neither taste nor smell, and that represents somebody who doesn't doesn't necessarily study or do mitzvahs. But the Torah is telling us to hold them all together, and God's telling us that when we come together, that God is elevated. God atones us for our sins, and the mitzvah cannot be complete if even one of them is lacking. If you have only three of the four kinds, that's not kosher to fulfill the mitzvah. So. Regardless which one's missing, whether it's the Esrig or the, or the willow, it doesn't matter. If you don't have them all together, then you are not fulfilling your mitzvah of celebrating the, uh, fulfilling the mitzvah of taking the four kinds. So again, we're emphasizing the idea of Jewish unity. And it looks like our time today is nearly coming to an end, but I just want to emphasize a few more points. While the davening is a beautiful and joyous yamta davening, remember that we're going to add halal as we do. Um, most, uh, on most, on other special occasions throughout the year, on suk on, on Pesach, and on Shavuos, and on Rosh Chodesh, and on Kanaka, but we do so on Sukkot as well. It's a reminder to us that every day is a gift, every breath is a miracle. We sing God's praises for these miracles every single day. But when we come to these times of joy, to these celebrations, we're going to emphasize it. And we experience an extra measure of God's love and protection throughout the 40 years in the desert. And this, since we're celebrating another this holiday, so we gather together and we sing God's praises together. That's hollow. And it's important to remember that praising God really deepens our bond with Hashem.